I have a sneaking suspicion I'm going to repeat some things from last week because I can't remember who I was with when, so <laughs> bear with me. But it feels very fresh to me um, what I'm about to talk about, partly because it came a little bit tonight out of just connecting with a few of you before the before the e our evening began and some conversations I was having over the weekend. And I'll tell you about the conversations that I was having over the weekend. I was we were sitting I was sitting with a group of people at a little vegan restaurant in uh, in British Columbia. A little, I don't know how many of you have been to Victoria, British Columbia. I have a very nice, strong sangha. If anybody's listening from there, hey. Anyway, we had a we had a nice little visit in this in this little restaurant, and each person at the table shared a little bit about how they ended up in Victoria, and we were just marveling at how life had conspired to bring us to that moment, and and. In almost each case, there was something that had to do with oppression, with uh, suffering, with loss. And I think I may have mentioned, and this is where I was a little confused about when I, what I talked about last week, I may have mentioned my grandmother. Did I do that last week? Anyway, it, was, it just came up in the conversation again that I would not be sitting there with that particular group of people, I wouldn't be sitting here without you, with you, had it not been for uh, my grandmother's experience of the pogrom, where her whole village was wiped out. Did I talk about that part? Okay. Her whole village was razed to the ground, and huge diaspora of people, Jewish families having to find new homes and. And she was very entrepreneurial, and, and uh, she bribed a, first of all, she took a, she somehow managed to take a train across the Trans-Siberian Railway, and then on a peanut boat, a Chinese peanut boat, going to, from Vladivostok to Seattle or someplace, went to the middle of the, middle of the country and ended up being placed in, Placing different families in the middle in the Midwest, and she ended up in Omaha, Nebraska, of all places. And then she lived there, had family, built a business, you know, this whole this whole thing. And out of that, my life came, and I ended up moving away, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's just one little story of how I came to be here, one little aspect. But we were marveling at how everything that ever happened on earth for all time had to happen in order for all those pieces to come together, for us to be here in this room tonight. And that not one of us could help up to this moment how we have come to be. And this is all a, a reminder, I'm saying this, and perhaps I said the same thing last week, a reminder that we are 
as my friend Wes says, we are not our fault. You are not your fault. You have been, you know, just forged by non-personal circumstances that, that stretch to beginningless time. Not only are you made out of selfless or non-personal elements like earth, air, fire, and water, your body, but your whole psychology, your whole neurology, your whole everything about you is formed by either you know, parents, grandparents, everything that has ever happened. All the different diasporas, all the different beings who've been oppressed or who've, who've, who've been victims, been perpetrators, it's all, it has all moved us in such a way no one apart from that in that impact no one could really be any up to this moment any different than the way you are so then we fast forward to our each our even though our lives are non-personal selfless in the way that they are so deeply connected to everything that has ever happened and that no being truly exists in an absolute way, independently, apart from everything that's influenced you. So this idea that I somehow exist separately is only a partial truth. It's called relative reality. But if we look a little bit deeply, more deeply into our nature, there's not one thing about us that exists completely independently, apart from all of those causes and conditions that conspired to make you the way you are. So again, you're not your fault. Now fast forward to your, in the face of even that non-separateness, your unique individuality. Every person here. No doubt each person here, even though there is only an unfolding present in the absolute sense, everything has always happened in present time. There is no real past, no real future. There have only been present moments. But those present moments transform and actions happen. Everything unfolds in an unfolding present. But each of you, in terms of each of you, each of us, has what we would call a past. We have, even though our past, what we call our past, at the time they were present moments. Does that make sense? So there's only ever been a present in each of our lives. So that the, when we talk about the past, we're thinking about something that is already gone, but we're thinking about it in the present moment. It doesn't actually exist, but we conventionally say, I have a past. And it turns out that past, what we call the past, is the, is the body of memories, of the impact, of the impressions of the past present moments, of the present moments that I had before. And so into this innocent unfolding of life that's being moved by so many circumstances come certain causes that make, that make me act in certain ways, think in certain ways, speak in certain ways. And in some of those past present moments, many of those moments were not necessarily informed by wisdom or love or a wide view of reality. 
They were, many of those moments were influenced by ignorance, confusion, greed, aversion, fear, and out of that came certain actions. I happened to speak with somebody recently who about seven years ago, you know, really lovely person. Uh, so many wholesome qualities, done so much good in their life, in their past present moments, but in their, some of their past present moments, they, they made messes. One person, the person I'm thinking of, was married to someone who one day just said, you know, it's not working for me. And this person didn't expect the person to say, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And, and at the time, given all that had formed that person, all the influences, and that the person I'm describing had been raised in a family, so that was the most immediate impact, They'd been raised in a family where people didn't exactly open to their feelings about things. Do you know anyone like that? They, this person grew up in a family where when the going got tough, they got drunk. So there was alcoholism, there was, there was a, an inability to learn the tools of, or to practice the tools of metabolizing feelings as they emerge. And so this person completely innocently, by osmosis, picked up the ideas, you don't stay with things, you don't feel things when, when it gets tough, when it gets overwhelming, when you get flooded. You distract yourself any way you can. And you can see as a, as a culture, that is our number one methodology for dealing with things that are hard to bear is we go shopping. We bury ourselves in some kind of distraction. We do it because we love ourselves and we're just looking for relief, but we don't realize that that form of relief leaves us in, on a, in a cycle of dissatisfaction and contraction and, and a kind of misery of endlessly searching. We know that. That's what's called samsara, endless wandering, endlessly searching for relief and in a future that, of course, because it's an idea, remember there's no past or future, in a future that never arrives. So our, our mind is always in that, when we're in that, using that distraction methodology, it's always looking for a, uh, some relief elsewhere. Some way of, of, of not having to feel what I feel now. Looking for some sweet experience. And we all have our list of our, our chosen addiction or methodology. And often it's alcohol or drugs or shopping or now of course it is, it's anything related to technology, television, did I already say that? But that, um, unfortunately, that methodology hasn't made anyone happy, and yet it's still, we're still left with the universal human longing for happiness and well-being, ease of being and safety, contentment, peace. 
So this person was raised in the same conditions that most of us are, the culture that is bent on keeping us greedy to keep going, keeping us hungry in a state of thirst. And the, the way the Buddha described the second noble truth is, is the cause of suffering is craving. And that craving is, the word is tanha. The word tanha is more accurately translated as unslakable thirst. Can't satisfy it. So the, so the model for the person I'm referring to was unslakable thirst. You can just keep, you keep feeding the, feeding the, um, the hunger and you keep getting hungry, more hungry. And so at the point where his partner said, I don't want to be married to you anymore, he went crazy and uh, started sleeping around, just making and affecting other people's lives. And, and because our actions don't exist in a vacuum, just remember we're always impacting everything and everyone. We don't know it because we've also, because of our continual narrow view of reality, a lack of wisdom and a wide perspective, we actually think we're, we're separate. We actually think there's two. There's everyone and us. Or there's God and us. We don't realize that we're all moving in the same soup. What lives inside of you lives inside of me. There's only one leading everything. I don't mean a thing, but everything is connected. And so, out of ignorance, we act in ways that we don't realize we're actually causing not only ourselves harm, leaving ourselves with unslakable thirst, but we're actually, those, the harm we've caused, we've caused ourselves ripples and affects other people as well. And we've all done it. And now, seven years later, this person's life, this particular vignette of, of mess-making has become it comes as a visitor in his present moments as regret. And because of a, the narrow understanding of reality, where I am, I am uh, it is my fault what I do, that view that, that we are to blame for the way we are, we may be responsible for the way we are. We have to deal with the consequences, but we are not to blame. Blame is a view that you are always operating with full wisdom and understanding, clarity and mindfulness of what you're doing, and that you know that the results of what you're doing. And you're doing it, and you're doing it if harm is caused, you're doing it because you meant to cause harm. It's absurd. But we are responsible for them the results of our action. So this person, because they think that it's their fault, and they have then also projected onto all the people who seem to live a little bit more blamelessly, a little bit more wisely, a little bit making a few less mistakes, you could say, or less, less messes. Those people have, have, have 
projected on them the, the ideal of this is how I should be and this is how I am. I'm the blameworthy one. I'm the guilty one. And so every time he thinks of those other people, these certain people in his life, he feels shame, feels embarrassment, feels self-judgment, and will not let himself off the hook, will not, is not able to forgive. And he's not able to forgive himself, and we are often not able to forgive ourselves because we think it's our fault. And that there is some fundamental flaw to our nature that is blameworthy, and that if we hold ourselves hostage long enough, maybe do enough uh, penance, is that the right word? Penance. Penance, thank you. That then perhaps we can relax. And that doesn't seem to work. So there's a, a two-pronged approach in the Dharma. There's the approach of wisdom, where you widen your view and you widen your lens to such an extent that you realize that you could not help doing what you did up to this moment. But that if you do infuse, if you learn how to infuse your present moments with mindfulness, or what's called satipanya, mindfulness mixed with wisdom, where you actually know what you're doing when you're doing it, that, you, that if you create with mindfulness that space of choice, that into that vacuum of, of space will come choices that, that tend to lead you in a way that leads more to happiness and less to suffering. To the extent that you have that individual agency, you can do that. Now, you may still be the heir of all the other things that everyone else is doing. You know, if the, if the country becomes a war zone, you can be the best person in the world and still be affected by that collective karma, that collective condition, the collective actions. So it's, so, but individually, we can become happy. We can live happy lives. And we can, and our hearts can let go. We can let go into the present. We don't have to keep dwelling on those past present moments and be hostage to what happened before. We can see with deeper understanding, this is the first poem, deeper understanding that things were the way they are. This is how they came to be. There's a teaching in the Pali Canon called Yata Bhuta, to tune into, Yata Bhuta means things as they have come to be, things as they are. And that's essentially the meaning of vipassana, or insight meditation, is seeing things as they are, or seeing things as they have come to be. That they, things are, have arisen, have come together lawfully according to causes and conditions that were, that we, we couldn't help up to this point. But right now, this moment is a, is empty, is open. If we're here, if we're present. And this moment of openness is a, a field. This moment of presence, any moment of presence, any moment that you wake up to where you are at any time, at any day, that's a moment of creative possibility. That's a moment where you literally move the world in the direction of happiness. 
And you don't just move yourself. You move everything. If you plant the seed, as I think I mentioned last week, plant the seed of loving kindness. You plant the seed of forgiveness. If you plant the seed of wisdom, where you, you look deeply into life and, and see how deeply interwoven everything is, that you see that we're not so separate, that you come out of the tangle of your shroud of, of self-absorption. I was, as I rummaged through readings, I, this, I like to read this every now and then. And this is something we can reflect on and just see every day if we just open our eyes. This was a way of seeing that, we're, that we are living in a, a sea of differences. Uh, a shared humanity, but such different shapes and colors. This, I, to me, it may not appear so to you, but this room is a kaleidoscope of, of uh, race and, and, uh, and ethnic history and size and shape. and It's beautiful. And it's, I may miss that, the fact that we are so multicultural here, multifaceted, each person uniquely shaped by their life. That's what I was really struck by, by when I was, before the evening, I was looking at each person, like, wow, how this person came to be. And each person's uniqueness. And there's so much history here. There's the history of all humanity is in this room. It's wild. But anyway, I, I just thought I'd share this one again. If we could shrink the world, the Earth's population to a village of precisely 100 people, this is a little more than 100, but, but um, with all existing human ratios remaining the same, it would look something like the following. There would be 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 Americans, North and South, 8 Africans, 52 would be female, 48 would be male, 70 would be black, 30 would be white, 70 would be non-Christian, 30 would be Christian, 89 would be heterosexual, 11 would be homosexual. Of course, this is very dated now because there are a thousand different variations of, of sexual orientation now, which is also one of the wild and wonderful things about our unique individuality, but also about our humanity in general. Six people would possess 59% of the entire world's wealth, and all six would be from the United States. 80 would live in substandard housing. 70 would be unable to read. 50 would suffer from malnutrition. One would be near death, one near birth. I would, one would have a college education. Are we shrouded or what? One would own a computer. That's a little more now. I bet it's two. <laughs> so on the wisdom side, we would open up and see that we don't exist alone apart from each other and that we're informing each other and being informed in every moment. On an individual level, as a way of dealing with this, this uh, burden of the past, of having taken everything so personally and 
get, and, and added the, shot the second arrow of self-blame on every painful thing that, that, that we've done that caused harm to ourselves or other. So if we've been compounding it, what we need is, a, is an individual practice of forgiveness. And the, the most simple one, the, you know, the traditional one, I'll share the traditional one. The tr traditional one is to, as many times as you can remember to do this, reflect. If I have, if I have harmed anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, by my words, my thoughts, or my actions, by what I said or didn't say, did or didn't say, didn't do, thought or didn't think, if I have harmed anyone through my thoughts, words, or deeds, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask for forgiveness. And we can do that. We just start orienting in that way. Now, forgiveness is something that just happens gradually. You can't make it happen. You just keep planting that seed of a kind intention. It's, a, it's an act of kindness. It's saying, it's saying it, it benefits no one for me to keep myself hostage to this imagined past. As my teacher Punjaji used to say, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on our chest. So I don't need to do this, but I need to gradually, not just for, um, not just for myself, but for everyone. I need to be, have my heart be at ease so that I can be of, of use. It, I'm no use to the world burdened by regret and guilt, shame. It does nothing beneficial to anyone. So if I've harmed anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, words, or actions, I ask for forgiveness. And in the same way, if I've harmed anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, or myself, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive myself to the best of my ability at this time. And if anyone has harmed me, because we often feel, we might as well say, talk about the other side, where we have felt harmed. Because for everyone who's caused harm, there's someone who feels harmed. If anyone, if, if anyone has harmed me through their thoughts or words or actions, knowingly or unknowingly, to the best of my ability at this time, I forgive you or forgive them. And you can, with that, bring someone to mind who you may have felt harmed by. To the best of my ability at this time, I forgive you. I forgive myself for any harm that I may have caused myself or others knowingly or unknowingly. So that's a more traditional reflecting on forgiving ourselves, forgiving others, and offering and, um, and asking for forgiveness. A simple version that I've been using lately, that I tend to use a lot when I bumble around and make a mistake or harm someone, four lines. It's okay that I make mistakes. If you want to write it down. <laughs> it's okay that I make mistakes. It's okay that I am not perfect. 
I know, I think this is last week I did this. No? It's okay that I make mistakes. It's okay that I'm not perfect. Now, it's, I find it very interesting to see how you react internally when you hear that. It's okay that I make mistakes. And it's okay that I'm not perfect. So if you feel any resistance to that idea, it means you need to just keep whittling away. Just keep planting that seed until you get it, until you understand it. And then keep widening your view. Keep learning about karma. Keep learning about interdependence and interbeing. As that's the, um, that is the fragrance of our life. It's, we're just connected to each other and affecting each other. As Francis Thompson says, one could not pluck a flower without troubling a star. Or as, as Albert Einstein said so beautifully in oft-quoted passage, a human being is part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest a kind of optical delusion of consciousness, of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free, free from this prison, free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. But nevertheless, we need to keep widening our lens, remember, remembering that the laws of cause and effect and conditions, but at the same time, we can just keep planting that seed. It's okay that I make mistakes. It's okay that I'm not perfect. The third line, it's okay that I am a learner, that I'm learning. Every single person if you were born, is a work in progress. I know in the world of relationships, especially, we inevitably learn on the backs of the people who we messed up with in relationship. Everybody is both perpetrator and victim in relationship. It's just how it goes. And if the wider our view and understanding, we understand that. And so we forgive more easily. We forgive ourselves for our ignorance. It's okay that I am a learner. And then the last night line is reflected in the more traditional ones. Last line, I forgive myself. It's okay that I make mistakes. It's okay that I'm imperfect. I'm not perfect. It's okay that I'm a learner. I forgive myself. I always like to add, with the best of my ability at this time, as much as I'm able to at this time. So that I don't have to turn my inability to forgive myself or others into another reason to punish myself. So all of this points to the necessity, because we are learners, because we make mistakes, because we're imperfect, 
the necessity to somehow deal with our past. Both by understanding it as, as the residue of in the present, of actions, of body, speech, and mind, most, like, most of which were informed by greed, hatred, or ignorance, because that's what human beings tend to fall into. And, and had we been able, with you know, 2020 hindsight, had we been able to know more clearly what we're doing, we may not have done certain things if we had wisdom shining through in those moments. But we didn't. Things were meant to be exactly the way they are. How do we know? That's how they, had, that's how they went down. Can't, we can't do a thing about our past other than let, let go of the, the burden of it. And then one most wonderful way of letting go of the past is to become so passionate about the living present which is so alive and so nourishing, so heart-opening. And so it, the more passionate I am about being present, the, the more easy I am. And the, you know, the more home I am here, the, more e the easier it is to let go of, hap of what happened before. But if I'm missing this place of such intense sustenance, nourishment, divinity, this living mystery of being present, if I'm missing that and I'm dwelling endlessly in this virtual reality of the, the moments that happened before, I'm, I'm missing, I'm missing the, the heart food. So I don't want to do that. So widening our view, practicing forgiveness, practicing letting go into the present, it's all there is anyway. And I think if we do all of that, we'll, we'll be okay. So it's all of you, however you have come to be, it's okay that you make mistakes. It's okay that you're not perfect. It's okay that you're a learner. I forgive you. <laughs> now it's your turn to forgive yourself. Anyway, let's sit quietly. giving yourself the gift of silence to experience yourself not as a self but as being being present being aware being a field of loving kindness intelligence clarity not defined by your past or your future, fully available and awake to this living present. May all beings find this happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings free themselves from the burden of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings never be separated 
from the sacred happiness that's without sorrow here and now. May all beings grow in serenity and equanimity, able to metabolize and accommodate the joys, inevitable joys and sorrows that meet, that everyone meets. May our practice today, tonight, and every day and night be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be liberated. May all beings know forgiveness. May all beings be free and at peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.